Welcome back, everyone, to Neurology Exam Prep from uh, Yale Neurology. My name is Safa Abdelhakim. I'm a PGY3, and I have with me today Dr. Jeremy Moeller, uh, our uh, Yale Neurology Program Director, who's indeed a familiar voice to you all. How are you, Dr. Moeller? I'm doing great. I, I'm so glad you've invited me back. I was a little nervous. I was waiting for the invitation. <laughs> I was wondering if I completely blew it with the neurocutaneous syndromes the last time. So, so it's, it's just wonderful to be back. Never. <laughs> yeah, you're always a, a wonderful addition. Um, so today we will talk about uh, spinal cord anatomy, Dr. Moeller, um, and we can um, introduce some clinical syndromes as well. So w- what will be our approach to the different tracks of the spinal cord? The spinal cord can be an area of some discomfort, both clinically and anatomically. Uh, It's a relatively small structure, uh, not much thicker than your finger uh, in in diameter or cross-section running along your entire spine. And there are a few different ways to think about the anatomy of the spinal cord. And I think I'll emphasize some of the most important aspects of the spinal cord, dating back to when you were a first or second year medical student, and then we'll build upon that and draw some of the correlations that you can make uh, between those anatomical structures that you learned very early on in medical school and and the clinical syndromes that we see. We can think about first the cross-section of the spinal cord and think about the two main sensory tracts and the main motor tract that's involved uh, in the cross-section of the spinal cord, and then we can build upon that. So the main motor tract is the corticospinal tract. And the corticospinal tract includes the lateral corticospinal tract, which is the main motor pathway uh, sending motor information to the the limbs, to the uh, extremities. And then, of course, there is a smaller anterior corticospinal tract, uh, which mainly uh, controls axial muscles. And the corticospinal tracts consist of axons of the upper motor neuron. So as you remember, the upper motor neuron starts in the primary motor cortex, just anterior to the central sulcus, and sends a projection downward through the internal capsule, through the uh, anterior aspect of the midbrain, the cerebral peduncles, through the anterior aspect of the pons, down through the medulla, And then in the medulla, there's a crossing, the pyramidal decussation, and that's where you get the crossing from ipsy to contralateral. Same axon, still the upper motor neuron, and then that descends through the lateral corticospinal tract to innervate muscles in the arms, in the leg. The anterior corticospinal tract consists mainly of uncrossed fibers, and the anterior corticospinal tract is part of the uh, spinal tract that controls the axial muscles. So the vast majority of the corticospinal fibers, the upper motor neurons, are crossed. A smaller uh, number of upper motor neurons stay ipsilateral, and those are mainly for axial muscles. Importantly, the upper motor neuron ends, so it synapses with the lower motor neuron in the anterior gray matter of the spinal cord. So the anterior gray matter of the spinal cord is where the lower motor neuron cell bodies sit. And so we sometimes talk about anterior horn disease and the anterior horn disease alludes to the lower motor neurons that are in the anterior gray matter, the anterior horn of the spinal cord at that level. And then of course those lower motor neurons 
uh, descend through nerve roots, through plexuses, through the peripheral nerves, through the neuromuscular junction, and then the muscle, and that's what makes our uh, our body go. And so uh, what always amazes me about this is, is the length of these axons, right? So if you're thinking about a, a motor neuron that innervates the extensor digitorum brevis of your foot, you know, this small intrinsic foot muscle that you have uh, all the way at the bottom of your foot, you've got one axon that is going from your head all the way down through your brainstem, crossing in the medulla, going all the way down your spinal cord, you're talking over a meter long, right? That axon, then synapse in the, uh, synapse in, in the uh, anterior horn cells. And then the second, the lower motor neuron is descending all the way down the length of the leg. Again, another meter. Uh, and so I, I, I sometimes marvel at the distance Amazing. that these, uh, these, motor, uh, uh, these motor impulses uh, send. So there's, there's two neurons uh, in the uh, corticospinal tracts, the upper motor neuron, uh, descending through the lateral and anterior sp uh, corticospinal tracts, and then the cell bodies of the anterior horn cells, which is your lower motor neuron. So that is your motor pathways. And then there are two sensory pathways, two primary sensory pathways. And Safa, can you tell me what the two main primary sensory pathways are? So that would be the spinothalamic tracts or also the anterior lateral system. The other one would be the dorsal column or the medial lumniscus system. Yeah, that's right. And, and again, those uh, listeners who are early in med school, this is new to them. To everyone else, this is a blast from the past. So those are our two main sensory systems. And so the anterolateral system, uh, the spinal thalamic tract, that uh, mainly carries what type of sensory information to the brain? So that would be pain um, as well as uh, temp uh, pain and temperature, crude touch, yeah, those are the big ones. And then what about the dorsal column medial and miscal pathway? So that would be vibration, proprioception, fine touch. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, um, and this is why every uh, neurology resident worth their salt carries around that 128 hertz low C tuning fork, uh, the tuning yeah. fork do bulbs on the prong. Um, I have a, as a, as a side note, and maybe for some humor for the listeners, uh, I have a good friend who worked for many years as an emergency department trauma nurse. And, and he uh, would often be dealing with major traumas and other serious emergencies. And then of course, stroke alerts in the emergency department. And, uh, and he said the thing that drove him nuts was when my residents would come down and pull out that tuning fork. And he said, you know, this is an emergency. What, what, are, what are they doing with a tuning fork? And I said, they are testing one of the two main sensory systems in the, uh, in the peripheral sensory nervous system. And so don't give them a hard time about that tuning fork. Yeah, I'm going and down, going to us do save lives sometimes. <laughs> <Gotta> <laughs> Absolutely. Keep our exam right. <laughs> Absolutely. We have to test those uh, dorsal columns. So let's walk through uh, both of those pathways in terms of the sensory manifestations. So if I stick a pin or a broken uh, tongue depressor or a safety pin or whatever you're using to test uh, pain, if I stick that in your uh, great toe, uh, there will be conduction of that information through the peripheral nerves up through uh, the uh, dorsal root ganglion where there's a bipolar neuron, but it's still the same primary sensory neuron through the posterior horn of the uh, spinal cord. And then the, right at the junction of the posterior horn of the spinal cord, there's what's sometimes called Lissauer's tract. There's a small tract 
where that sensory information can ascend a couple of levels. And that's why we talk about the uh, pain and sensation usually crossing a couple of levels above where it first comes in through the dorsal root ganglion. And then of course that pain and temperature sensation then synapses in the posterior gray matter, so the posterior horn of the spinal cord at whatever level it is, and then crosses. And the crossing fiber of that second order sensory neuron, that crossing area is the anterior spinal commissure, or sometimes called the anterior white matter of the spinal cord. And you have to remember that because that's gonna be very important when we talk about central cord syndromes and why you get a suspended sensory level with central cord syndromes. So we have the uh, dorsal root ganglion, a synapse in the posterior horn of the spinal cord, second order neur neuron crosses uh, in the anterior spinal commissure, and then ascends through the lateral uh, spinal thalamic tract. That's going to stay ipsilateral all the way up to the thalamus. Uh, so the second order neuron, again, is a very long neuron, ascending all the way through the spinal thalamic tract through the entire brain stem, staying ipsilateral through the, or, you know, staying on that side, which is contralateral to where the sensation was, and then up to the uh, ventroposterior lateral nucleus of the thalamus, which is the primary sensory relay nucleus of the thalamus, and from that VPL nucleus of the thalamus to the primary sensory cortex. And so there are three synapses. The first synapse is in the posterior horn of the, uh, of the spinal cord. There's a synapse there, then a cross, then ascends all the way up through the spinal cord and brainstem. The second synapse is in the VPL nucleus of the thalamus. And then the third synapse obviously is going to be in the primary uh, sensory cortex, uh, posterior to the central sulcus. So whereas motor has two synapses, sensory has three. Uh, so that's the spinal thalamic tract or the anterolateral system. Uh, so-called because there are anterior and lateral spinal thalamic tracts, which are in the anterior and lateral aspects of the spinal cord. And that's going to be important to remember when we talk about anterior spinal syndromes, uh, where pain and temperature is often impaired. So now we get back to that tuning fork uh, that, uh, <laughs> that I think is essential for all of you, uh, but my friend uh, is inexplicably irritated by. Um, so we take a vibrating 128 hertz tuning fork. We do not want to test vibration sensation with a higher frequency tuning fork. Uh, it's going to be less useful than the, the low C, the 128 hertz. Uh, you put that on a, a big toe or a finger, and then that information is carried through mainly large myelinated fibers up through nerves, again through the dorsal root ganglion. There's a bipolar neuron there, and it's going to enter the spinal cord through the posterior aspect of the spinal cord and then stay ipsilateral, so it doesn't cross there. Uh, it stays ipsilateral in the spinal cord and ascends through one of the posterior columns. And for the legs, it ascends through the fasciculus gracilis. And I always think the legs are further down. G is a little bit further down in the alphabet, so fasciculus gracilis for the legs. And for the arms, it ascends through the fasciculus cuneatus or the cuneate fasciculus, a little bit higher up the arms, which are, and C is a little bit higher up in the alphabet. Uh, so that's one way I think of it. I don't know, Safa, if you have any other mnemonic, but that's what I remember from medical school. Oh, no, that sounds great. <laughs> so the uh, fasciculus uh, gracilis is gonna be more medial. It's the more medial of the posterior columns, uh, and that's gonna be the legs. And the fasciculus cu cuneatus is gonna be a little more lateral 
uh, and that's going to be the arms. And really, that's just because it's added a little bit later on, you know, up the spinal cord as these uh, sensory fibers ascend. So these sensory fibers ascend. This is still the primary sensory neuron. This is still the primary sensory neuron, the first order sensory neuron. And then those fibers are going to ascend up to the respective nuclei. So you're going to have the nucleus gracilis and the nucleus cuneatus, which are in the medulla. Uh, they're in the posterior medulla. So the nucleus gracilis and nucleus cuneatus, that's where you're going to get your first synapse. The second order fibers, the second order sensory neurons, are then going to cross in the medulla. And they cross through the internal arcuate fasciculus. And basically, it's uh, arcuate fibers. Uh, those are fibers that arc through uh, the posterior aspect of the, uh, of the medulla. Then they're going to ascend through the medial lemniscus. Uh, that's the, the white matter tract that ascends through the remainder of the brainstem. Uh, and that's why they're called the dorsal column medial lemniscal system. The first order neurons are in the dorsal column. The second order neurons are in the medial lemniscus. The dorsal columns are ipsilateral to the sensory input. The medial lemniscus is contralateral uh, to the sensory input. Then those fibers ascend also synapse in the ventroposterolateral aspect of the thalamus, the VPL nucleus of the thalamus, which is our primary sensory relay nucleus of the thalamus. And then those go up to the primary sensory cortex, which is posterior to the central sulcus. So that third order neuron is from the VPL to the uh, primary sensory cortex. And so pain and temperature fibers cross a couple levels above in the spinal cord. The vibration and uh, joint position sensation or proprioception fibers are going to cross in the medulla. And that's why when we have hemicord syndromes, you're going to get a crossed uh, sensory, uh, uh, across sensory finding. Now, before we get to the syndromes, I do want to talk about a couple of the other sort of less famous, less beloved tracks within the spinal cord. And I am not a spinal cord expert, but I think it is useful to think about the remaining tracks within the spinal cord and the remaining areas within the spinal cord as either sensory, motor, or autonomic uh, fibers. So there are, the remaining tracks are going to be sensory, motor, or autonomic. The main remaining sensory relay tracts within the spinal cord are going to be your spinocerebellar tracts. And so the spinocerebellar tracts basically carry proprioceptive information to the cerebellum. And sp so the spinocerebellar tracts are really useful at telling the cerebellum where your limbs and body are in space. So the spinocerebellar tracts, which are very superficial, very on the edges of the cross-section of the spinal cord are carrying that proprioceptive information, that information about where we are and where our limbs are in space to the cerebellum. So those are the really important sensory relay. And then there are a few motor tracts, which uh, are less well-developed, I think, in humans, sometimes more well-developed in, uh, in other animals. And those include the rubrospinal tract, so rubro because of the red nucleus, and that is the opposite of the spinal cerebellar tracts, the rubrospinal tract is a cerebellar motor tract. So that is carrying information from the red nucleus, which is output from the uh, cerebellum, from the superior cerebellar peduncle, down to mainly axial musculature. And that's basically allowing people to sort of, uh, allowing people and animals uh, to uh, control themselves in space. 
Uh, the reticulospinal tract, known for the reticular nuclei that we have in the brainstem. Remember, reticular nuclei are important for sort of arousal and awareness. So the reticulospinal tract sends that information down when somebody's awake and aware uh, to maintain posture when you're awake and aware. So that's the reticulospinal tract. Uh, the vestibulospinal tract should be relatively self-explanatory, and that's carrying information from the vestibular system to your musculature, mainly your ax axial musculature, and that's allowing you to uh, get vestibular input into your posture, sort of this really reflexive vestibular input, you know, the unconscious vestibular input we have into our posture. And then the, the last one is the tectospinal tract and uh, tectum, remember the tectum is the uh, superior and inferior colliculi. And really we're mainly talking about the superior, superior colliculi in the, uh, in the midbrain. And that's mainly visual input. So this is information from the visual system descending down uh, into our motor system to allow our head and body to be aligned when we're moving our eyes. So the tectospinal mm -hmm. tract is really uh, to coordinate head and body movements with eye movements. So I'm just gonna summarize those again. So we're, the, the main sensory one is your spinal cerebellar tract, uh, which is gonna give you information about proprioception to your cerebellum. And then the feedback from that is the rubrospinal. So that's taking that information from the cerebellum and putting it back down uh, to maintain posture. And then you think about all the other inputs that we need to maintain posture and each one of those has a tract. So you need to be alert and aware, that's your reticulospinal. You need to have vestibular input when you're uh, maintaining posture, that's your vestibulospinal. And you need visual input when you're uh, maintaining posture and that's your tectospinal. Those are less well-known. All of those are in different areas of the anterior spinal cord. Uh, the posterior column is the main part of the posterior spinal cord. So those are all in the anterior spinal cord and in various regions. And then the last thing I'll talk about is we've talked about the uh, dorsal gray matter of the spinal cord or the dorsal aspects of the spinal cord where, where sensory information comes in. We talked about the anterior horns of the spinal cord, which is where the motor neurons live. And then there is a lateral horn, uh, sometimes called an intermediate uh, area. And that's mainly going to be autonomic information, primarily the sympathetic neurons. So that's the cross-section of the, of the spinal cord. There's a lot, but you just have to re really remember the two sensory and one main motor area. You gotta know those well, know when they cross. And then if you wanna be really fancy, you can think about the additional sensory one, the spinal cerebellar tracts, and the other motor ones. And those are all gonna be about postural control. Rubrospinal, cerebellum, reticulospinal, awareness, alertness, vestibulospinal, self-explanatory, and tectospinal eyes. Uh, and then for the gray matter, dorsal horns, horns are gonna be sensory, anterior horns or ventral horns are gonna be motor, and the intermediate uh, column or the intermediate gray matter, the lateral gray matter is gonna be uh, mainly sympathetic autonomic nervous system. That's a wonderful review for the cross-section of the spinal cord. And I invite our listeners to pull up a picture of the, uh, of the, of the spinal cord as, as we review. I wanted to ask you about the vascular supply to the spinal cord. Yeah, the vascular supply to the spinal cord is extremely complicated, A. And B, it is highly variable between individuals. So this can be really tricky. And, and uh, Safa, I'm sure you've cared for patients with spinal cord infarcts uh, or with 
uh, dural arteriovenous fistulas for uh, other vascular abnormalities in the blood supply to the, to the spinal cord. It's just extremely complicated. And one reason it is, is that everybody's a little bit different. But mm -hmm. the cervical spinal cord, so most of the cervical spinal cord, certainly the upper aspects of the cervical spinal cord, is going to be primarily supplied by the uh, vertebral arteries. Uh, so it's going to be mainly branches of the vertebral artery that are going to feed into that big primary anterior spinal artery. When you get down into the lower cervical, upper thoracic, a lot of that is going to be your intercostal arteries. So intercostal arteries feeding into the anterior spinal artery. And that's why that region, that sort of upper to mid thoracic region is sometimes the area where you see watershed infarcts because it's sort of the junction between the upper and lower spinal cord, which have more robust uh, supply. And then the lower aspect of the spinal cord is primarily uh, in, uh, supplied, the blood supply is primarily from uh, various arteries which are, which are branches off of uh, the aorta, the descending aorta. Uh, so there are uh, lumbar arteries, sacral arteries, other arteries, which then feed into that uh, anterior spinal artery. So if you think about the upper part of the spinal cord is gonna be mainly vertebral, the middle part is the, kind of that tough watershedy area, but that's going to be intercostals, highly variable. And the lower part is going to be bigger branches off the aorta. And so we sometimes see, for example, after aortic surgery, uh, that you will get a, 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 a lumbar a, a spinal infarct, for example, lumbar or a thoracic a, a spinal cord infarct. Totally. And the famous one in the thoracic area, uh, Dr. Moroller, the artery of Adamkowitz, the one we learned about in med school, and I've actually seen it clinically as well. Yeah. So the artery of Adamkowitz is basically a large, I think, lumbar artery. It's sort of a large primary artery, which is a branch off the aorta, supplying the lower portion of uh, the mid to lower portion of the spinal cord, uh, thoracic and, and lumbar spinal lumbar. cord. Uh, when you're thinking about the cross-section, when you get down to the cross-section of the spinal cord, of course, we have a single large anterior spinal artery. Uh, that's going to be your primary supply with perforators all around. And that supplies the anterior two-thirds of the spinal cord, including most of the gray matter and all of the anterolateral aspects of the white matter, including our descending motor tract, the lateral and anterior corticospinal tracts, and including the uh, spinal thalamic tracts, so the anterolateral system. So pain and temperature and motor are going to be supplied by the anterior uh, spinal artery. And then there are smaller paired posterior spinal arteries, which supply the dorsal columns. And so uh, classically, an anterior spinal syndrome, which is usually related to uh, an infarction or a thrombus in the anterior spinal artery or decreased vascular supply to the anterior spinal artery, is going to affect the anterior two-thirds of the spinal cord, which is going to include most of the gray matter, especially the anterior gray matter, as well as the anterolateral system, pain and temperature, and the motor system. So you will get paralysis, often a periparesis if it's, uh, if it's in the thoracic spinal cord. You'll get loss of pain and temperature sensation, but you get retained joint position, sometimes light touch, and uh, vibration sensation. And that's sort of your classic anterior spinal syndrome. And one of the most common causes of an acute anterior spinal syndrome is going to be an infarct, a spinal cord infarct. The other aspects that I wanted us to review, that I wanted us to get a chance to review is the autonomic innervation of the spinal cord, uh, including the sympathetic stimulation, the parasympathetic stimulation, especially as we control uh, 
latter function. Yeah, this is very complicated. I'm going to touch on it at a superficial level. Uh, and I'll start with the uh, sympathetic uh, aspects of the autonomic nervous system. So as I said, uh, sympathetic neurons, those second order sympathetic uh, neurons live in the lateral horn of the uh, spinal cord uh, and are gonna be most prominent in sort of the thoracic aspects of the spinal cord. And they will lead into third order neurons that are in those uh, sympathetic ganglia, which uh, uh, travel all the way up and down sort of lateral to the spinal cord. We know about the superior cervical uh, sympathetic ganglion, which is the one that's affected by a Horner syndrome, for example. So that's gonna be a little bit further up and that's mainly getting input from sympathetic neurons from the lower cervical and upper thoracic spinal cord. Uh, so the Horner syndrome, one place that you could have a lesion causing a Horner syndrome is in, in the lower cervical or upper thoracic spinal cord. There are ganglia a little bit further down and uh, the superior me uh, mesenteric ganglia. There are the splanchnic nerves, uh, which go to the celiac ganglia and supply a lot of the viscera. And then there are uh, inferior ganglia uh, sort of further down in the lower uh, thoracic and upper lumbar cord. And I just want to touch a little bit on how this all affects bladder function, because one of the things that comes up when we're examining patients with spinal cord disease or spinal cord injuries is that we're very interested in urinary function. And there's three main inputs to control of urinary function that are important to remember. If we start furthest up, as I talked about, you have this inferior mesenteric ganglion, this sympathetic ganglion in the lower thoracic and upper lumbar spinal cord, sort of T11 through L1, L2 uh, area. Those are sympathetic fibers. They innervate both the bladder in, uh, detrusor and the internal urethral sphincter, the autonomically controlled uh, urethral sphincter. And basically what they're going to do is prevent you from emptying your bladder. So if you remember what needs to happen to prevent you from emptying your bladder, you need to have relaxation of the detrusor muscle. So you, you don't want that to contract and, uh, and push out the urine. And you want contraction of that urethra, of the uh, urinary uh, sphincter, the internal autonomically controlled urinary sphincter. And when you think about it, that makes sense from the sympathetic function. If you see a tiger in the woods uh, and you have the fight and flight response, you do not want to empty your bladder in, uh, at that moment. You might do some, that sometime later uh, once the fear has resolved and you have that sort of parasympathetic overload as sort of a vasovagal response. But at least initially, while you're running, you don't want to be emptying your bladder. So makes those, sense. So those, those sympathetic uh, fibers that originate in the lower thoracic and upper lumbar cord, uh, those sympathetic fibers that lead to the inferior mesenteric ganglion are gonna cause relaxation of the detrusor and constriction of the urethral sphincter. The next thing is the parasympathetic control, which does the opposite. So the parasympathetic uh, neurons are located in the sacral parasympathetic nuclei. And what they are going to do is cause contraction of the detrusor and relaxation of the urethra. And so when you have contraction of the detrusor and relaxation of the urethra, you're gonna have urination. So it's exactly the opposite thing. And then the third aspect of urinary control is a striated muscle, 
which is basically the somatic component of urethral contraction to keep you from emptying your bladder. And that is somatic motor neurons within the nucleus of ONUF, O-N-U-F, the nucleus of ONUF, which is a, um, a somatic control of the pudendal region and of the uh, uh, urethral, urethral sphincter. And I always think that the somatic component, which goes through the pudendal nerve, is the thing that allows you to wait to get to the next gas station on a long drive without emptying your bladder. So if you're trying to hold it uh, just a little bit longer uh, for that next rest stop or that next gas station, a lot of that is going to be the voluntary control of your urinary sphincter, which is going to be those somatic striated muscles. Uh, and the nuclei of those are also in the, the lowest aspects of the spinal cord. So there's going to be involuntary bladder control, which is sympathetic, and that's going to be further up. That's the lower thoracic and upper lumbar. Then there's voluntary bladder control, which is in the lowest aspects of the uh, conus medullaris, uh, S2 to, to 4. But then there's also the involuntary allowing your bladder to, uh, to empty, uh, which is parasympathetic, which is also uh, in a different nucleus within the, uh, the conus, uh, within S2 uh, to 4. And that's that sacral par parasympathetic nucleus. So if, if we think about this, this can explain why we have different types of urinary incontinence or urinary dysfunction depending on the level of the uh, injury. So the most common thing is that you have a conus medullaris uh, syndrome. So you have compression of the conus itself. If you have compression of the conus itself, you may lose voluntary control, uh, but you will, still, you will have hyperactivity of the sympathetic fibers further up so you'll develop urinary retention. Uh, so basically those sympathetic fibers that are causing involuntary contraction of the sphincter and involuntary relaxation of the detrusor will take over and you'll get acute urinary retention if you compress the conus. If you have a cauda syndrome, often the same thing will happen. You'll get a loss of tone within, uh, voluntary tone within the pudendal region, but again, you have this overactivity of that upper part in the lower thoracic and upper lumbar spinal cord uh, above the level of the compression. And again, you're going to get urinary retention. So that's why you get retention with a conus medullaris syndrome or with a, a cauda equina syndrome. And that's a classic thing. It's what we always ask for. And we always are very, <clears throat> we're always very worried about when somebody has acute urinary retention, because it usually means compression pretty far down, either in the conus or the cauda equina. That makes a lot of sense. Could we ever get such urinary disturbance with higher up, further up lesions uh, above the thoracic spine? Yeah, so acutely, uh, in the context of spinal shock, there will often be acute urinary retention. But chronically, as you develop sort of the hyperreflexia in your muscles uh, after a spinal injury of various sorts, usually what you'll get is basically a hyperreflexia of the reflex arc that's involved in urination. So the commonest uh, symptoms that uh, somebody with a spinal cord, a chronic spinal cord injury might have would be a, a spastic bladder. So frequent urination, urinary urgency, sometimes incomplete emptying because there's not a lot of voluntary control. You're cutting off a lot of the voluntary control because the lesion is further up. Um, so it's a, it's a slightly different pattern. You're not gonna get that large flaccid poorly emptying bladder, although you may, uh, sometimes what you get is a spastic bladder. And it really depends on the degree of the spinal injury and the degree of loss of input of other things. The classic example would be people with 
partial myelopathies, people that have had uh, myelopathy in the context of a demyelinating disease, for example, usually will have urinary frequency uh, as an early symptom uh, with partial lesions. And then you can also get what's called uh, detrusor sphincter dyssynergia, because you can imagine that these inputs and outputs have to be well-coordinated between the thoracic and the, uh, and the sacral cord. And if you don't have coordination of those two things, then you get this uh, incoordination of bladder control and you get a combination of urgency and urinary retention. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. It's definitely an important question a neurologist always asks. So now that we've discussed the anatomy, the vascular supply, the autonomic innervation, uh, I think we're in a good place to talk about some clinical syndromes. What do you think? So one reference that I thought was really useful um, uh, that in preparing for this that I looked at was uh, by uh, Mariano et al. in Practical Neurology in 2018. And I liked their uh, practical approach to the diagnosis of spinal lesions. So uh, to paraphrase them, and I'm, I'm not going to uh, use exactly their rubric, but I, I like their general idea. Uh, you want to think about the cross-sectional localization. You want to think about the uh, length of the lesion along the long axis of the spinal cord. And then you want to think about the acuity of the symptom onset and the overall disease course. So we have these cross-sectional syndromes, we have the length of the lesion, and then we have the acuity. And when you put all those together, you can usually come up with a good list of diagnoses for each one. So the cross-sectional syndromes that I think are really important to remember are the anterior cord syndrome, the posterior cord syndrome, the hemicord syndrome, and the central cord syndrome. And then of course, a total cord syndrome where you get complete dysfunction of everything. So the anterior, posterior, lateral hemicord, and the central cord syndrome. And so we talked about the anterior cord syndrome, usually a vascular thing because of the uh, orientation of the vascular supply. And that's going to be a loss of pain and temperature because of the spinal thalamic tract dysfunction and a loss of uh, motor function because of the corticospinal tracts involved. The posterior cord syndrome is going to be primarily a problem with vibration and joint position sensation because that posterior cord mainly contains the dorsal columns. So the hemicord syndrome is one of the most recognizable clinically, and it goes back to the three main pathways that we talked about before, the two sensory and one motor pathway, those primary principal pathways within the spinal cord. So the hemicord syndrome so-called Brown-Saccard syndrome, has crossed uh, sensory findings. And the reason is if you think through a specific hemicord syndrome, you can walk through how those findings will be crossed. And this is one where I would encourage our listeners to sit down and look at their favorite anatomy diagram, walk through this, and be able to trace out why this makes sense. But let's go through it ourselves just now. So let's say somebody has a thoracic lesion on the left side of the spinal cord. So they have a thoracic lesion on the left side of their spinal cord, somewhere about the mid-thoracic region, say T6. That lesion is going to disrupt all three pathways on that side, but of course they cross at different levels. So the motor and the dorsal columns pathways both cross in the uh, medulla in the lower brainstem. 
So a lesion in the mid-thoracic region is going to disrupt the corticospinal tracts and the dorsal columns after they have already crossed. For that reason, below the level of the lesion, on the left side in this example, you're going to have ipsilateral loss of vibration sensation and joint position sensation because of the disruption of the dorsal columns after they have already crossed. And you're going to have loss of ipsilateral strength. So you're going to have weakness ipsilaterally in that lesion. So a left-sided hemicord lesion, because it disrupts those pathways after they've already crossed in the medulla, is going to cause ipsilateral weakness and ipsilateral loss of proprioception, joint position sensation, and uh, vibration sensation. The issue with the anterolateral system is a little more complicated. If you have a lesion at the level, uh, at laterally, let's say this left T6 uh, lesion, then you're going to disrupt uh, incoming uh, fibers at that level, you know, plus or minus uh, a couple of spinal levels, ipsilaterally. So you will often have a band of loss of pain and temperature sensation at that level, ipsilaterally. In this case, a band somewhere in the chest around the level where that lesion is because you're disrupting those pain and temperature fibers just as they enter the spinal cord. Below that level, you're actually going to affect the contralateral pain and temperature uh, fibers because you're disrupting the anterolateral system, the lateral uh, corticospinal tract, and you, uh, those fibers have crossed below that level. They've crossed below that spinal level. So to summarize, a Brown-Sicard syndrome is going to have ipsilateral weakness, ipsilateral vibration and joint position sensation dysfunction, a band of ipsilateral pain and temperature sensation dysfunction at the level of the lesion, and contralateral pain and temperature dysfunction because of disruption of the anterolateral system uh, above where it crosses. That's a wonderful review. I think this syndrome really summarizes a lot of the um, cross-section anatomy that we went through. So thank you for that. As I said, I think it's a difficult thing to say by speech. Uh, I certainly had some beads of sweat on my forehead uh, as I talked through that. Uh, mm. But the summary is you start from the end. You're going to have ipsy vibration, joint position sensation, dysfunction. You're going to have ipsy weakness. And you're going to have mainly contra pain and temperature dysfunction below that level. And you just need to walk through and think about how that works uh, and why that works from an anatomical perspective. The, the, the last main uh, cross-sectional syndrome that I wanted to talk about very briefly is the central cord syndrome. And in a central cord syndrome, uh, say you have an expanding uh, syringomyelia or you have an expanding mass in the central cord, one of the first uh, things you're going to affect are, is that anterior spinal commissure, those crossing white matter fibers, uh, which are, uh, consist of the pain and temperature fibers, those second order pain and temperature neurons that are crossing from the dorsal horn of the uh, white matter of the spinal cord to the contralateral spinal thalamic tracts. And so if you compress those fibers at the level of the lesion, with an expanding central uh, spinal mass, then what you're going to get is bilateral suspended sensory dysfunction, mainly uh, uh, pain and temperature sensation dysfunction at the level of the lesion. Now, as that continues to expand, you may then develop more problems be below that level, including weakness uh, or other types of sensory dysfunction. But the reason that you get that sensory dysfunction is because of compression of the anterior spinal commissure 
And those are those fibers that are crossing bilaterally through the uh, anterolateral system uh, to the contralateral uh, spinal thalamic tract. Sounds great. And I'm assuming as this expands, then we'll start hitting the motor fibers. Yeah, gradually. You know, the story with, a, with a, something like a syringomyelia is that you might start to get, if it's in the uh, cervical cord, you get restricted paresthesias or sensory dysfunction in your hands. Those might ex extend up your arms. And then as that extends further, you might start to develop some spasticity, weakness, bowel or bladder dysfunction uh, further down. And that suspended sensory dysfunction when it involves the arms and shoulders is sometimes called the cape-like distribution of sensory dysfunction because it involves the arms and shoulders. So it sort of hangs over you like a cape, uh, but then uh, does not affect fibers below that. Uh, so if you have a cape hanging over you, it doesn't touch your legs and your back and your torso. It sort of hangs over your shoulder. What would be an approach to an acute myelopathy? Yeah, so, and again, I'm going to fully reference this article by uh, Mariano and, and colleagues in practical neurology, uh, and I want to fully cite uh, their influence on, on this approach, although I may add some uh, comments, um, because I think it's great. I think it builds on some of the anatomy, the longitudinal and cross-sectional anatomy that we already talked about. So when you have an acute presentation, uh, you're going to think of three things, the acute time course, the cross-sectional uh, breakdown of the uh, lesions, and then whether the lesion involves a longitudinally extensive, so longitudinally up-down uh, lesion, or uh, a short segment. And that's going to really narrow down your differential diagnosis. So if you're thinking about an acute myelopathy that infects, uh, affects a relatively short segment of the spinal cord, then you break it down by those axial syndromes that we talked about. If you have uh, an uh, anterior syndrome and it's a very short segment, then you might be thinking about ischemia. If you have a partial syndrome, like the hemicord syndrome or multiple lesions, then you might be thinking about a clinically isolated syndrome or uh, 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 the first uh, signs of multiple sclerosis. If you have multiple enhancing lesions or lesions that involve both the leptomeninges and the parenchyma of the spinal cord, then you might be thinking about an acute infectious process or something like sarcoidosis. Another uh, possible uh, explanation for multiple acute enhancing lesions involving both meninges or spinal cord might include uh, rapidly expanding neoplastic process. So those short segment lesions, the things you're going to think about are an acute clinically isolated syndrome, especially if it's sort of less than two spinal segments and involving only part of the cord. And those often go on to uh, uh, be the first manifestation of multiple sclerosis. You can think about acute infections, you can think about masses, or you can think about other autoimmune or post-infectious processes. For the long segment, so if you have a longitudinally extensive lesion, then you're going to have a lot of different options. If the longitudinally extensive lesion involves mainly the anterior horns, so you have a primary motor problem, a flaccid paralysis without other dysfunction, Often virally, the etiologies can cause that, and that's what we call a poliomyelitis. You know, you get infection of the anterior horn cells, and some common viruses that cause that uh, include uh, poliovirus. Uh, they can also include West Nile virus. We've seen cases of that. Forms of VZV infection can cause a similar type of problem, so those are going to be your anterior horn cell uh, lesions. If you have a posterior column uh, problem, usually that's going to be metabolic. So things like the subacute 
uh, combined degeneration that you see with vitamin B12 deficiency or other vitamin deficiencies that may cause more of a posterior cord uh, problem in the acute setting. Uh, your central cord problems, uh, that can include the NMO spectrum disorders. More diffuse uh, cord problems, again, can be the uh, NMO uh, spectrum disorders. If you have a longitudinally extensive uh, diffuse process uh, that in involves th the entire anterior cord, we talked about that before, then you're going to be worried about vascular abnormalities. And those could include spinal cord infarcts, but they can also include uh, things like a, spot, a dural AV fistula, uh, epidural uh, hematoma, other things that would be uh, more identifiable by imaging. We just reviewed the acute syndromes based on the size of the lesion uh, and how extensive it is on, on, our, on imaging, which I think is, is great. How about more chronic presentations of spinal myelopathy? And again, according to this paper, and I think it's very reasonable, uh, it again is useful to think about short lesions and then longitudinally extensive lesions, and then to think about some of these cross-sectional uh, syndromes. And so uh, longitudinally extensive, uh, chronically progressive problems, if it's a central cord problem, then you might be thinking about a progressively worsening central cord mass or progressively worsening syringomyelia because of some disruption in CSF uh, dynamics and CSF flow, such as related to a Chiari malformation. Uh, if it's a more of an anterior syndrome, you, again, you could think about a slowly progressive dural arteriovenous fistula. You could think about uh, other sort of slowly progressive vascular problems. If you have a posterior column syndrome, again, that could be a more gradual onset of uh, one of the metabolic disorders. And then if you have multifocal problems, then again, you're thinking about inflammatory or neoplastic processes. And in, in that, you can also consider perineoplastic processes as well. For short segment or multifocal uh, chronic disorders, again, those are going to usually be neoplastic, slow-growing infections, uh, autoimmune processes such as multiple sclerosis, sarcoidosis, things like that. Uh, one last thing, and we're not going to get into this in a lot of detail, but there are uh, progressive syndromes of spinal cord dysfunction that can be familial in nature. Uh, and uh, those include the hereditary spastic paraparesis uh, disorders. So that's uh, something to think about uh, also. And uh, we talked about anterior horn syndromes in a previous pod podcast that you did with Dr. Dewey, where you talked about spinal muscular atrophy. So that would be another progressive lower motor neuron problem uh, uh, that you can see. And of course, if you have a mix of upper and lower motor neuron problems involving the anterior horns, then we have to think about motor neuron disease, which again, we covered elsewhere. Sounds good. Infectious myelitis is a very common diagnosis that we encounter. Um, could you help us uh, navigate the process of diagnosing infectious myelitis? I think we can uh, talk about it in a few different ways. And when we're thinking about infections, um, it's always easiest to think about uh, the subtypes of infectious organisms. So there are bacteria, both the sort of acute and then slow-growing bacterial infections. Uh, and uh, the slow-growing bacteria that we always have to think about are Lyme and tuberculosis. You can think about viruses that affect the, uh, the spinal cord, and then much more rarely fungal and parasitic infections. Uh, those are much less common. Uh, the vast majority of our myelopathies are going to be viral. Some of them will be bacterial causes as well. 
And so uh, the, uh, some of the other uh, issues that we talked about already in terms of the longitudinal extent of the lesions and the cross-sectional area of the lesions can help us with that. And then the CSF analysis can help us as well if, uh, if a lumbar puncture is uh, able to be done safely in patients. And of course, sort of our acute, fast-growing bacterial infections will often have a very high white count uh, with a predominance of uh, polymorphonuclear cells. A uh, viral infection will often have a high, but not quite as high, uh, uh, white count in the CSF, uh, and that's often predominantly lymphocytic, although it's important to know that many viral infections early on can have a polymorphonuclear profile, at least initially. Tuberculosis often, uh, and, and other slow-growing bacteria, can often have a lymphocytic predominance as well. Uh, the protein will be elevated in all of these disorders, uh, although often highly elevated in some of the uh, slow-growing bacteria and especially tuberculosis. Uh, glucose is typically low uh, in bacterial infections, just like we talk about with meningitis, but not in every case, and uh, typically normal in viral infections, especially early on. Uh, it can be de decreased in some of the slow-growing infections as well, and certainly with the fungal and parasitic infections. And interestingly, in sarcoidosis, uh, we can see the low glucose uh, level as well. Gram stain may or may not be helpful. Uh, positive gram stain in sort of an acute bacterial myelitis may be positive uh, half of the time a little bit more, but not always, and that will depend on whether somebody's being treated with antibiotics. And then our PCRs and other special tests can really help. Uh, to narrow down. So uh, you need to think through the possibilities, other infectious exposures, but the CSF profile can help a little bit with that. I do want to talk a little bit about a few uh, special cases. So uh, let's start with some of the viral myelitis uh, syndromes. Uh, so uh, one that I think is really important to know about is uh, HSV2 infection. So HSV2 infection that often involves the lower aspect of the spinal cord, the conus, then the nerve roots off of that. So you get this combination of a polyradiculitis and myelitis. And uh, one of the eponymous terms for this syndrome is Ellsberg syndrome. So uh, either with acute or reactivation of HSV2 infection, you get inflammation uh, and infection of the conus, the lower parts of the spinal cord, and the nerve roots. And this can produce a catequina type syndrome, that acute urinary retention, sphincter dysfunction, and lower limb weakness and numbness. Uh, so something important to think about and something that's important to test for. Uh, VZV, varicella zoster virus, is one of the most common causes of viral myelitis uh, and can have a number of different uh, manifestations. It can cause a poliomyelitis, a primarily anterior horn syndrome. It can cause a diffuse uh, cord syndrome. And of course, it can cause cord infarction uh, because we know that uh, VZV can cause uh, a... Uh, arteriopathy or vasculitis as well. And these are all very rare, but I should say that VZV, even though it's rare, is one of the commonest causes of vi viral myelitis, just because viral myelitis is not a super common disorder. Uh, many of us have read more recently about acute flaccid myelitis, mainly an anterior cord syndrome that occurs with a specific subtype of enterovirus, the enterovirus D68. So something to keep on the differential, particularly in endemic areas and at specific times. Poliovirus, as we talked about before, is the classic poliomyelitis, so it affects the anterior horns. And West Nile virus can be very similar, but the, the clues that this might be West Nile virus are often a very high fever, sometimes a skin rash, uh, occurring in endemic areas and at certain times of the year where you're more likely to be infected by mosquitoes, and often a very uh, acute uh, onset. Uh, 
And one last virus that I'm going to mention uh, right now is HTLV-1, uh, so human T-cell lymphotrophic virus, uh, and that causes something called a, a tropical spastic paraparesis, so-called tropical because the endemic areas include many tropical areas, the Caribbean and parts of South America, although it is also seen in parts of Africa and in Japan. And the story here is a, is a subacute, slowly over weeks or even months, a progressive paraparesis type process, often with urinary and sensory dysfunction. Uh, so if you have somebody with a, a curious, unusual, progressive paraparesis process, uh, that's that's subacute or slow, uh, then uh, HTLV-1 is, is something to consider. And uh, we haven't talked about it here, but uh, HIV uh, can, when it's poorly controlled, uh, present as a myelitis, and that often is a diffuse or multifocal myelitis and can include motor and sensory symptoms. Uh, and sometimes that can improve uh, with the initiation of antiviral therapy, but it depends on how uh, early it's identified. Uh, and that seems to be a direct effect of the virus itself. Very interesting viral syndromes. So I'm not going to mention all the uh, bacterial syndromes, but we'll mention a couple. Uh, Lyme, we're in Connecticut. That's something that we uh, often think about. Classically, Lyme is going to affect the lepidomeninges, the peel surface, and then may extend to involve the spinal cord parenchyma. So the more classic or common presentation of Lyme when it affects spinal uh, tissues is going to be a radicular neuritis, so a painful uh, radiculopathy with uh, involvement of the nerve roots and sometimes the nerves. Uh, and uh, the eponymous term for that, it sometimes comes up. Give me a second to try to pronounce this. It's <laughs> going to be garin bujadu bonworth syndrome. Uh, and so uh, we sometimes see that, and that'll be a focal or multifocal uh, radiculoneuritis uh, due to a Borrelia infection. Uh, syphilis, I think everybody needs to know about posterior column dysfunction that's seen in tertiary syphilis, the tabes dorsalis, with prominent uh, proprioceptive uh, dysfunction. But acutely, you can have uh, more of a peel a type of infection, meningeal and peel infection. Uh, and uh, one thing that is sometimes seen on imaging, I've never seen it uh, acutely with syphilis myelitis, uh, is this multiple strips of peel enhancement in multifocal areas that kind of looks like a flickering candle. And that's called the candle guttering sign. I think guttering is another word for flickering. And then TB can basically do anything. Uh, there is spinal tuberculomas. There can be vertebral uh, tuberculosis with uh, spondylitis and then uh, subsequent compression. The uh, eponymous term for that is pot disease. Uh, but then it can cause uh, epidural abscesses and it can cause an acute myelitis. So TB is a disorder of a thousand faces uh, uh, everywhere, but in, uh, including the spinal cord. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Moeller. Uh, this was a wonderful review, and I certainly feel much more comfortable um, about sp with spinal cord syndromes, and I hope our listeners are as well. We'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Safa. It was really a pleasure. This is a tough topic, but I think great to review and, and hopefully prompts our listeners to get back to the books and look at some of these diagrams and, and make sure that uh, they're understanding spinal cord anatomy and function. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Bye. Bye.